Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. the red light is on and for red line is the light we're streaming on the radio and wow. um, on air that's old school that's how old school i'm gonna go on air well welcome everybody this is uh another episode of redefining society and uh you know this is where we make the connection between technology sometimes cybersecurity, and how that influence our everyday life, so society in general. Sometimes we may go a little political, sometimes we may go a little bit more sociological. Most of the time with me, you know that, we go philosophical because I like to go there. But it all starts with the conversation usually around some technology that we're using every day. And most of the time as users, we don't know enough about it. And uh, today is interesting because it, it, it's, it's going to be about cryptography, which is very cryptic. If you ask me as a concept, probably for a lot of us, you know, we heard about it, encryption, messaging and all that kind of stuff, signals, telegraph and even WhatsApp, for example. But do we really know what it is and why is it so important for us maybe to know what it is, to understand what it is? And so my guest today is a professor of computer science at the ETH Zurich, and he teach and research on consultancy in the applied cryptography, which is already cryptic to me. So Kenny, Kenny Patterson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marco. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're hoping you're going to help us to decipher. Now, look how many jokes I'm making already about this. You feel free to jump in anytime you want. <laughs> So let's start from yeah. let's start from the beginning. Uh, a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do at the university, and uh, what you teach. How you got there? Uh, your origin story. Make it make it short. That's good. Uh, okay, great. Um, yeah. So I was born in Scotland a long, long time ago. There you go. Longer ago than I care to mention. <laughs> um, but I've actually lived outside of Scotland more than I ever lived there. So I left Scotland in 1990 after my degree in mathematics to go and do a PhD in the in the bright lights of London. And uh, I spent some time in industry. I spent some time in academia. The last uh, three years, I've been working at ETH Zurich, which is the, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. 
in Zurich, one of one of two, well, three actually uh, Swiss Federal Institutes. Uh, there's also one in Lausanne, and uh, this is one of the sort of uh, best top computer science schools in uh, Europe in the world. Even. And uh, my specialism is cryptography. So I started as a mathematician. I was always interested in seeing how mathematics could be applied. And, and cryptography is one of those subjects where, you know, we're, we're scrambling data, we're doing mathematical operations on data to, to mess it up, to scramble it, to make it hard to read. Um, but we also have to be efficient on the computer. And we want to be able to send our data over a network, say, so we want to make sure that, you know, we don't, we don't end up turning a small amount of data into a very large amount of data when it's scrambled. So, um, it, you know, it connects with things like networking. Um, and cryptography is one of those things, it started a long, long time ago. So, you know, uh, the Caesar cipher, many, many of your listeners will have heard of, this was being used in, uh, in Roman times. And the idea of the Caesar cipher was, you know, if you shift your, all of your letters by three, so A becomes D and then B becomes E and so on, e, then you're doing some kind of scrambling on the, uh, on the data. Uh, so that's like 2,000 years ago, and it was good enough for the Romans. These days, we're doing things that are a bit more sophisticated than that. So as I already mentioned, we're implementing this stuff on, on computers, uh, but it also has roots in mathematics. So it's at this interface between mathematics, computing, and actually uh, engineering as well. And for me, that makes it a particularly fascinating subject. It is fascinating. It is so fascinating that they, you know, they've made some movies about it. I, I am thinking every time I got to be honest, I mean, we have a lot of tech conversations, cybersecurity, but every time I think cryptography, mm -hmm. I go back to the imitation game, that mm -hmm. movie about Alan Turing and, and the Enigma machine. And I think that's maybe, as you said about the, the, the Roman machine, but this is probably what everybody thinks about, at least if they go to the movie right. and what it is. Now, that is a kind of becoming a computer. It's but it kind of you know still analog. I will say in, that's right in, in a way. Actually. Yeah, mechanical, electromechanical. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so that there is you know something to resolve so that you can read what what it means and and that's how you know at the end of the of the day mm -hmm. it can shorten even the Second World War quite a bit. A lot of people say that's that's what it is because deciphering that. Right. So that's fascinating. And how do you go from mathematics to this, this, uh, this out, I'm going to, are they algorithm? Am I using the wrong uh, word? That's the right word to use, absolutely. Encryption algorithms, decryption algorithms, and so on. And I guess it's also worth saying at this point that confidentiality is really important, and we achieve that using encryption. But we're actually also interested in additional properties like, say, integrity. We want to make sure the data hasn't been modified by an attacker. Like, I mean... I actually probably care more about the integrity of my bank balance than I care about its confidentiality, right? There's no money there, but I don't <laughs> want it to go negative. I don't want to end up with owing the bank money when actually my balance is positive at the moment. Yeah, no, so, I, lo I love that you, yeah. that, you, that you brought that up because that's actually a conversation that we do a lot in, in, the, in the more cybersecurity-oriented conversation, like the integrity mm -hmm. of the data, especially when you're feeding information to you know, artificial intelligence. So we're already going there. It's, it's what is going to make... The algorithm, algorithm decide or go in a direction or another, so that the integrity it's it's very important. That's but right. let's yeah. bring it to. I'm curious, people that are listening right now are like, all right, this is all great. This is mathematician crazy formulas, computers. We use that stuff. So help us to give us some examples of how we're using that in everyday life and why is so. More, much more relevant, maybe than what what we think. Absolutely, yeah. Um, just before, uh, 
doing that, let me just, you mentioned the imitation game. And I just yeah. wanted to very briefly go back to that for a moment because actually not a lot of people know this, but there's a beautiful Easter egg in the imitation game. So cryptography was fundamentally transformed in the, in the 1970s by the invention of something called public key cryptography, which means that two people can do secure communication without, first of all, meeting and setting up a shared secret key that they use to actually do the scrambling. So um, this is an, was an amazing innovation when it first happened. And it was actually invented uh, at GDHQ, which is the kind of UK government, uh, one of the government agencies, uh, in the early 1970s, but they didn't publish it. They put it in a drawer and kind of promptly forgot about it. Uh, but it was rediscovered uh, in the public domain uh, by Hellman, uh, by Diffie and Hellman and, uh, uh, in about 1975, 76, a couple of years later, and they really brought it to public attention. And if you watch the imitation game very, very carefully, there's a scene where Alan Turing is talking to another character whose name I forget. It's the one, it's his fiancée, the one that he's momentarily engaged to. And uh, they're actually there describing the mathematics that underlies public key cryptography as invented by, by Diffie and Hellman in the 1970s. So there's a beautiful Easter egg in the movie. If uh, I guess that's only maybe for the real nerds out there. But uh, it's worth you watching that film to see to see that little Easter egg in action. Um, so you asked the question, like, you know, why why is this important now? Well, I guess the point is that we're all using cryptography all of the time, even if we don't realize that we are. So you know, every time you log into social media or you buy something online or you make a mobile phone call, you're using cryptography to mostly for communication security. Uh, of course, cryptography is then important in things like data storage as well. So we want to store our data on the cloud, for example. Then we want to be able to encrypt the data before we upload it to the cloud because we don't really want to trust the cloud service provider with our data, right? So you might do the encryption locally and then upload the data, and then you would look after the cryptographic keys yourself. Maybe the keys are derived from a password or something. And then, you know, we're also using cryptography in things like cryptocurrencies, for example, uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin, all the blockchains. And actually, cryptography is absolutely central to, you know, this Web 3.0 vision, right? So if you think about, if you want to prove ownership of a, a Bored Ape Yacht Club NFT, then you need cryptography to help you do that. Um, so there's this really remarkable range of places where cryptography is being used now. Um, most of the time, without us really use, knowing that it's being used, and, and you know, quite often, the most successful deployments of cryptography are the ones where people don't really know that it's going on. So every single mobile phone call for the last 30 years uh, has been encrypted using reasonably strong cryptographic algorithms. As you say, you know, that that's something we, we talked a lot, a lot. Like something that works in security, it's something that doesn't affect your use of the technology, right? When, when you are the, 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 the final user. Is there, it protects you. That's 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 the best way that it can work. But then you hear the news and you hear things like backdoors and people that can drop sieve into your conversations and all of that. So is it something that people should be worrying about in their everyday life when they're maybe they're not exchanging code to you know <laughs> to break into embassies or, or 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 banks or anything like that? I mean, is that is that kind of sensationalized by the news or, or is something that the user needs to be concerned about and choose the right um, 
maybe the right software, the right apps? And how do you know it is the right apps? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really fundamental question for the whole the whole space. So, uh, you know, one of the things that happened in the last 10 years was the, the Snowden revelations, where we learned that quite a few governments, the United States government, U UK government and others had mass surveillance programs effectively, right? They, they were trying to record it all and data mine it all to learn as they could about our data. Um, and, you know, there were all kinds of information sharing agreements in place that meant that, you know, the U.S. agency could rely on U.K. data and vice versa. And, and so um, it becomes very uh, central when you, when you think about uh, using things like messaging apps or, you know, buying things online. Is my data protected? Who can read my data? For most ordinary users, there's really no way to tell. Uh, you have to um, look for signals in the marketplace that tell you that a, a system is good, that it can be trusted, that the software was developed by reputable people, that it's been audited, for example. And, you know, honestly, for most ordinary users of this cryptography, literally billions of people who are using cryptography every day, that's really an impossible task. And there needs to be um, uh, the, a community of researchers and cryptographers who try to analyze these systems and, you know, basically hold to account the, the, the companies that are developing these systems and try to look for backdoors in them, try to do code audits, make sure that cryptography is being properly used. Um, there's not really enough of us doing that. It's like, um, it's a very specialist thing. There's also a bit of a disjunction between the theoretical side of cryptography and the much more kind of applied side. So, um, the sort of the way the incentive structures in academia are organized um, maybe you don't get so much kudos for um, you know analyzing a specific system that's been put into somebody's app um, whereas if you invent some new cool gadget in computer science then you know maybe uh, maybe you can uh, do much better in the in the kind of academic job market for example so um, it's it's a tricky one uh, going back to your original question you know how do we how do we know uh, fundamentally we don't <laughs> and a lot of companies are very good at making claims that, you know, that their software is good. I, I won't name any right here. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but the reality under the covers, it can be quite different. Um, I think another thing as well, like a, a lot of users are not really necessarily looking for security of the kind of bulletproof kind. They just want something that's good enough. I think Telegram, for example, is a really good example of that. So, um Telegram now has somewhere between 500 million and 600 million users. So it's getting to be a pretty big messaging system. It's very uh, feature rich. It can do all kinds of cool things. Like you can, you know, you can have channels on there. You can stream video. You can, uh, um, you can send each other nice emojis or GIFs or whatever, right? So it's got a lot of nice things going on there. But it doesn't have what we call end-to-end -end security by default. What do I mean by end-to-end -end security? It's like a standard thing that we want from a secure communication system generally, which says that, you know, the, the, if we're using such a system, I can send you a message, Marco, that only you can read. And nobody on the network between you and me is able to read, not even the service provider. So not even, say, Telegram servers would be able to read our messages. They might be able to, able to see what we call uh, metadata you know, the, the data about the messages, the length of the message or the time it was sent or who sent it to whom. And actually that, that data itself is very, very useful. Uh, so there's a famous quote by, uh, Gen from General Michael Hayden, uh, who once said, we kill people based on metadata, which, <laughs> by, by which he meant 
specifically, you know, the U.S. military working in conjunction with U.S. spy agencies gather metadata about communications, and they use that to send drone strikes against people in, you know, not in the United States, obviously, but in other countries. And that, um, sorry, I'm going to stop you because that, that means yeah. for the, the everyday listener, mm -hmm. it means that you can reaggregate the data and cross-reference with mm -hmm. other data that may not be your personal identification data, but you could put the, the dots together. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And this classically this was used, you know, in World War II and so on. It's called traffic analysis, right? So you're mm -hmm. analyzing the communication patterns, who is communicating, communicating with whom and when and how much are they communicating. I mean, if you see, you know, some big bank X suddenly starting to communicate with some other big bank Y, and there's lots of traffic going between their uh, data centers, then you might think, oh, maybe they're in merger talks. Maybe mm -hmm. something's going on there. And you know that can move markets, right? right? And then my other example was the using metadata to target people mm -hmm. and, and actually kill them, um, as done by the US government. So, so there is, there's going to be metadata. But in the end-to-end -end secure communication system, we are to be only metadata and nothing more. So we want actual content of the messages to remain hidden. And going back to Telegram, the sort of default setting in Telegram is not end-to-end -end secure. So actually, hmm. the default setting, all of the messages go through Telegram servers. And in principle, Telegram can see the content of all of those messages. Well, that's now, just because the default. I mean, the you default. could change the default and turn it into as good as it gets. You can, but only for one-to-one -one chats, not for group ah, messaging, right? Ah. So this is. And a I'm sure this fact. is not on the manual, right? I mean, I'm assuming there is a manual. If you know where to look, you will find that information. <laughs> You'll find it, but it's deep, uh, deep it's, down. Yeah. So we actually did a big analysis recently of of Telegram's um, uh, system and how they're how they're actually securing data from users' phones to the server. Not you know because they don't have the end to end, but they do still have encryption from the user's phone to the server, and, and this is going off on another tangent. But we found all kinds of uh, security issues in in the way they were using cryptography there, and so that's a system with you know five hundred million users. Yeah, so let, yeah. let's stay here for a little longer, and then and then I have a few more sure. questions. Uh, so you mentioned Telegraph. What you know, other another common one is Signal, and and mm -hmm. you know WhatsApp. It's something that we know it's end-to-end uh, -end encryption, also owned by another company that is not so famous for caring much about your personal information. That just recently switched name, and and there are others options out there. So again, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> If you're so the I, everyday person, you're not the, and I also have another quick because you know I didn't yeah. know about this telegraph uh, issue, and I telegram. know that uh, telegram. Sorry, a oh, lot yeah. of journalists they are they're using it. Yep. And is one better than another? Then. So let me say a couple of things in response to that. So mm. the first thing I'll say is a two-word sentence: use signal. Mm. Okay. Everybody should. So use I'm signal. good with that. Yes, yeah, good. Okay, that's the one I use. <laughs> Obviously, it depends what you're communicating and with whom. So, right. a big factor here is the kind of network effect, right? So, if all of your friends are on WhatsApp or Telegram, then right. maybe that's where you'll end up. Um, I know that's an issue with my, you know, my family group, for example. You know, we mm -hmm. end up everybody ends up using WhatsApp. Um, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe I'll get them to switch to Signal the next time Meta changes their privacy policy for for WhatsApp. Let's see. But, but but you go back to what you said about. Yeah about 
having the gadgets, having the emoji, mm -hmm. having the fun mm -hmm. thing, having the chat group and all of that. So Absolutely. there's always that thing between, okay, security, convenience, is it fun? How is yeah. the interface? That's how the everyday user consider that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So, so I think you're absolutely right that security doesn't really feature that high up the list of priorities. And if it does, then it's, you know, the ordinary users are not in a position to really assess security for themselves. They, they rumor, they hear that Telegram is probably encrypted. It was designed by Russian mathematicians, for example, and, you know, the, the kind of rumor gets going and everything is good. But actually, when you take a deep, deep look at it, it's, it's actually using lots of non-standard cryptography um, and, and doing odd things that uh, don't really conform with uh, the kind of best practices that we've developed for building such systems in the past. So um, tell me about so, the role of regulation into this, because I'm, I'm European, but I'm all the mm -hmm. way here in the US. And so when I look at GDPR and I look at, you know, I'm in California, so we got the California Act and whatever. So yeah. my point is, do what's the role in your opinion or what should be the role in your opinion of legislator to protect the privacy of the people that use it and be sure that look, uh, you got to give it by by default. You start opt-in, not opt-out. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I should really preface anything I say in that regard by saying I am not a lawyer. <laughs> no. <laughs> so this is not legal it's advice. Personal uh, opinion. A personal opinion. Yeah, so there's a huge patchwork of different regulations. I mean, I, I, it's actually very difficult for the companies who are offering these services uh, so in some countries now, they're being asked to actually break the end-to-end -end security of the of the systems that they've deployed in order to give governments access to data. And governments here, they do have legitimate concerns about these systems being used for you know planning terrorist attacks or whatever. Um, although actually, there's very little hard evidence that shows that these systems have ever been used that way. People, you know, the people who planned the terrible attacks in Paris a few years ago were just using ordinary text messages for their for their communications. They didn't use Signal, for example. Um, so there's this kind of there's been this very long running debate uh, in in the cryptography community at large. So there I include people like myself, also people from the government side, from security agencies, and so on, trying to create some kind of balancing act between these competing priorities and. Um, my personal view is that the sort of the genie has escaped from the bottle. You know, this kind of secure, very secure messaging is now ubiquitous, and the governments are going to have a very hard time putting it back in again. Now, you can go one step further and, and say that governments could put in place legislation that demands data be end-to-end -end secured, for example, you know, to protect the um, personal data of, of, of citizens. I think we're a long way from, from getting that. Um, so... GDPR is more about what happens to your personal data when it reaches the endpoint, you know, in the in the uh, you say in the server rather than um, uh, when it um, is in transit. Let's say, um, but a system like um, WhatsApp or Signal, which does offer end-to-end -end security, actually means that uh, the GDPR requirements are relatively straightforward because the data is always encrypted in such a way that not even the service provider can read it. So it really becomes more a question of like, you know, how secure are the endpoints where the data is actually being stored? Mm -hmm. So in, in, in that in that setting, um, the situation is fairly clear. It's an interesting question for Telegram, though, um, because they don't have this end-to-end -end security by default. So what are they 
what, what legal regime do they fall under when it comes to looking after users' data, which is passing through their servers in an unencrypted uh, form? And it turns out that Telegram servers are really widely distributed. So some of them are in Dubai, some of them are in the Netherlands. And they one of the ways that Telegram wants to, if you like, um, spread the legal risk is to have lots of different servers in different countries. Um, and then it's harder for their for their data to be interdicted, for example, by by any one government. And that's where you reconnect with what you said at the beginning about integrity of the data. Yeah, I guess I guess uh, that's true. I was really I was really thinking more about confidentiality still, though. Mm -hmm. so yeah, I really, but, but, I really yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, you know, spy agencies. Uh, <laughs> I think we'd much rather, if they could, uh, just passively eavesdrop on data and, and record it and not actually get involved in modifying anything. Because modifying stuff can leave evidence, right? It can leave fingerprints mm. behind. So yeah. that's something you would, you would rather not do. Yep. So we mentioned something before we started this conversation about, you know, what, what is the system that keeps everything together? Like the internet, you mentioned the, the 3.0, and we witness every day now the, this, the news unfortunately they're not that good for the war in Ukraine and, and how there is the wall, the garden wall or whatever you, <laughs> you want to call it the wall garden and how they can actually certain countries literally shut down certain communication mm -hmm. um, what is the role of, of encryption in all of this and I'm completely ignorant in this, this is right. really out of curiosity on how it affected the cyber act of warfare. And uh, I know we could have an entire podcast about this, but maybe just a little hint about, you know, what is the role of encryption when, when something like this happened? Absolutely. So one of the roles is as a facilitating technology to allow, allow people in those countries where, you know, maybe um, Twitter has been banned, for example, to still get access to Twitter. So they can use VPNs, mm -hmm. uh, and VPNs are, if they're working properly, are encrypting your data between you know, your laptop, say, and the, um, the VPN exit point, so that uh, it becomes much harder for an ISP who's monitoring traffic to figure out what that traffic is. Probably see it's an ISP, and, sorry, going to a VPN uh, portal, and maybe they can block it just based on the destination of the traffic. Uh, but they can't see exactly which website you might be visiting on the other side of the VPN, or the far side of the VPN. So their cryptography actually has a very strong role to play in enabling people to maintain contact with these kinds of services. Uh, and that's tremendously important for um, actually allowing people in countries, for example, like Russia, to get a more balanced view of, of what's going on. Now, of course, you could, you could also argue that we don't have a balanced view in the, in the West, that you know everything is very one-sided. But at least you can, you can in the West, at least you can see uh, what's happening in, say, the Russian media, as well as seeing what's happening in, in European media, and you can make up your own mind. In countries like Ru Russia right now, people don't have that option anymore, um, unless they're using these kind of things like VPNs. And this has been a similar issue uh, for a very long time in China. Um, I, I remember one time I was in China, this is like 10 years ago now, and people were always talking about the Great Firewall of China. So I got to my hotel room and I switched on my laptop and joined the Wi-Fi. And I tried to go to the BBC website to see what was happening back in the BBC. And it was blocked. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is, really, this, this is how it is. And then uh -huh. I switched on a VPN and managed to get past the Great Firewall. 
And indeed, uh, the first article on the BBC website was about Chinese censorship of the internet in China. And I was, go, go it, it was an amazing coincidence, but it really, brought the, <laughs> it really brought the lesson home to me that, you know, this is for real. Wow. Um, but but yeah. still, with a VPN, you, you were able to, to get around that. That's, uh, I, I was at that time, but there's a, there's a constant battle between the authorities mm -hmm. in these countries and, and people trying to evade. So it's like a you know, whack-a-mole kind of thing. You know? It's the never-ending battle between good and evil, right? I mean, that's... Well, I wouldn't. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I I'm making it a little bit more dramatic here. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, I know but it's, a, it's a good question because who is and who is evil in this world, right? I think no, of course, thing. but... You know, like uh, even if it's not good and evil, it can be commercial. Like, oh, my thing is better than yours, and then in a month from now, in response to yeah. that, now my thing is better than yours, so forth. Uh, I like to close this conversation maybe with with a look into the future. I like to mm -hmm. put the the futurist uh, hat on, and you're a professor of computer science. So the first thing that comes in my mind is, and we just did a podcast about this with with another professor, uh, quantum computing. How is that going to affect, um, you know, crypto, I mean, keys and uh, RSA and, and all of that? Are we going to just crack everything in three seconds or less? What, what, what's true and what is fantasy here still? Fantastic. It's such a great question. So uh, this is one of those areas where it's very hard to disentangle the hype from the reality. Mm. So uh, companies have invested a lot of money in quantum computing. Uh, salaries that are available to people to join some of these large tech companies to, to, to do quantum computing are enormous. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of heat in the space, let's say. There's been some incredible progress in quantum computation, but we're still a long, long, long way from being able to use quantum computers to do anything interesting cryptographically. So the bottom line is like, if you could build a large enough quantum computer and you could keep it running for long enough, totally isolated from its environment so it stays in a kind of quantum state, then you could break all of the public key cryptography that's currently deployed on the internet. Okay, so, and that would have really disastrous consequences, you know, see conversation above about all the different ways that we're using cryptography. If you could build a large enough quantum computer, and this is because of an algorithm that was invented in about 1994, I think, by a guy called Peter Shore, who was working for Bell Labs or AT&T Church at the time. Um, and what Shor's algorithm does is it actually uh, enables you to factorize large integers efficiently, quickly, on a quantum computer. But only if you have a large enough quantum computer that has like a, enough quantum bits in it, and only if those quantum bits are noiseless. They mm. don't have any noise in them, and you can keep them running for long enough. And it, it, it turns out that the sort of size of quantum computers that you would need would have something like, I don't know, 100 million or 200 million physical quantum bits, right? It, it's hard to get the exact numbers right because there's noise and then you need to kind of denoise the system. So there's this thing called logical qubits, which is uh, kind of cleaned up versions of, of uh, physical qubits. Um, and you need many, many physical qubits to build one logical qubit. And then you need many, many logical qubits to run Shor's algorithm, right? So it's very hard to estimate how big a computer would be needed. Maybe maybe 100 million or 200 million physical qubits would be needed. And, and currently, uh, we have about 100 qubits, noisy mm. qubits. So there's how many orders of magnitude? Five orders of magnitude or something more. Uh, six orders of magnitude between where we are and where we would need to get to to use a quantum computer to break the kind of cryptography that we're using today. 
So yeah. it doesn't seem so scary when you think about it like that. On the other hand, you might be protecting data today that's sensitive for the next 20 years or, or 50 years, right? If you're a government, uh, you might have state secrets that you're communicating using um, the, today's cryptography, and you want those secrets to remain secret for the next 50 years. Mm. And the issue is that you know a foreign government could be recording your diplomatic communications now and then trying to break them in 40 or 50 years from now when they've got one of these quantum computers that's big enough. <laughs> so it's a very difficult situation to be in. And, and so because cryptographers are very conservative, what we're doing, conservative with a small c, um, what we're doing is developing new cryptographic algorithms that we can use to replace the current ones, which we think, to the best of our knowledge, are what are called quantum resistant, uh, or sometimes we call it post-quantum, right? So they will resist an attack by a large-scale quantum computer that nobody's even built yet. So we're really, we're really planning ahead. And this is not just something like that a bunch of academics are doing. The US government is actually sponsoring this process. They're running a competition right now. Uh, it started in about 2016 or so. And actually, we're waiting for the results of that competition. Uh, they're due this month. So there's a whole bunch of cryptographers around the world waiting to find out if their proposal has been selected by the US government to form the next generation of cryptographic standards. Love it. Um, so yeah, I'm very proud to say that I'm involved in one of the one of the mm -hmm. finalists in that competition. Oh, um, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so we'll, we'll find out. I'll be either opening the champagne or uh, drowning my sorrows with champagne in, in about two <laughs> weeks from now, uh, depending on what happens in that. In that it sounds time. like there's going to be bubble involved no matter what. So. I, either which way, we drink champagne, yes. Uh, <laughs> So it's a, it's a really exciting time to be involved in the field of cryptography because it's about to go through this massive change over the next, say, five to ten years where we'll have all these new algorithms. They don't behave quite the same way as the ones that we currently have. So they're, they're, they're either slower or they require more bandwidth to send their messages or, um, uh, yeah, slower or require more bandwidth, basically, are the two, the two things. And so we have to kind of re-engineer a lot of the internet protocols to, to accommodate these new algorithms. That process is getting underway. There's a really great connection here between the scientists working on this stuff and, and the industry partners. Some of the large infra infrastructure companies, the fangs of this world, are actually involved in, in, in this competition too. I mm -hmm. should say it's as a competition. Uh, because that's historically been a great way to promote the development of new cryptographic algorithms, right? There's nothing attracts a, a typical academic more than, than some kind of competition that they might win and, you know, they get, they might yeah. get a plaque that says, you know, they did the thing and that gives them some. Or, or maybe you'll get some grants for it too. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You could, you could probably die out on it for a few years to come. This is like just one dimension of what's happening in cryptography. So we, we talked a lot about communication security, but there's also, you know, storage security. There's all the web 3.0 stuff, blockchains and anonymous cryptocurrencies. It's a great time to be a cryptographer. There you go. And I, I, I'm glad that you said that because I, I found this conversation really interesting. I hope it is for the audience. And of course, we can go way much more into the cybersecurity realm and more technological. So I, I would love to have you back uh, maybe next time, maybe on uh, on one of Sean's channels and uh, and keep keep diving in. But I think today you gave us a really good overall, and I know it's not easy to just, you know, bring it down when you when your job is to think about what the future is so thankfully there is people like you that 
that can do these and people like us that are like, okay, maybe I got an idea on why I should use one messaging system versus versus another. So I want thank, to thank you very much in the, in the ATH Zurich for uh, connecting us. And I hope you will join us again for more conversation. Thanks so much, Mark. I'd love to come back sometime. Look Perfect. And, and for everybody else, there will be some notes on the podcast. Uh, Kenny uh, will give us uh, some resources. If you want to share it with us, we can put it there. And please stay tuned for the next episode of Redefining Society on ITSP Magazine. Thank you very much. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.